Hi, my name is Erwin. I'll be doing the second Bible reading tonight, uh, being Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 to 31. Why not take one of the Pew Bibles on page 754 and follow along with me? The large numbers are the chapters and the small numbers are the verses, beginning in chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been good, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I say, what shall I cry out? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they are fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its peoples are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, 
No sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? says the Holy One. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Well, good evening. Uh, My name's John. I'm the pastor at this church, and it is a joy that we can meet together again as the family of God. A warm welcome to those of you who are new here visiting us this evening. Hope you'll find your time with us tonight encouraging. Well, you've come on a night where we are starting a new series, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is one of those big, scary prophets uh, that's very long, might seem hard to understand, but we're going to work at this together as a people of God, uh, coming week in, week out, sitting under the Word of God. And if, um, if you haven't been with us uh, for that long, we are starting this series at chapter 40 because the last two years we've done 1 to 39. So if you want to chase up on those series, you can listen to that online. Well, let's uh, ask that God might help us. It is a wonderful passage. We prayed about it in our prayer. We heard it read so well. Uh, let's pray once again. Lord God, we pray that the Word of God will do the work of God in the people of God and for the glory of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was the 1740s in London. Now, at the time, the British culture was nominally Christian. On the surface, it looked like life was okay. Everyone get along okay and life was good but beneath the surface it was in fact quite immoral beneath the surface there was a lot of rot and decay in British culture it's not unlike Australia Australian culture today once nominally Christian certainly no more that way very few today take God seriously on the surface looks like everyone's doing okay life seems to be good for so many but beneath the surface You just wonder how much rot and decay there is. Well, the 1740s in London, at that time, life in Britain was chaotic. Slavery was full-blown. Slaves shipped around the world from Africa and and abused and oppressed. Child labour, commonplace. The trafficking of women, huge problem at that time. It's, it's been said that about 25% of the single women in London were prostitutes at that time. 
Many at that time lived their lives in prison, a debtor's prison. You can't pay your debt, you get thrown in prison. And so what hope is there when life is like that, in the midst of chaos? Life was no good for so many. On the surface, it might seem okay, there's high society. But beneath the surface, there was a lot of despair, many experiencing hardship. The poor, the destitute, poor hygiene, cramped and inadequate living, living conditions. But that was meant to be a Christian nation. And so what do you make of it? What hope is there? What hope was there? What did a society like that need in the 1740s? Well, at that time, locked away in his London home, was this man, George Frederick Handel, a famous German composer who moved from Germany to London. But at that time, he himself, he was struggling to make ends meet. And so he was locked away in his home for about 24 days. And during those 24 days, he composed the 259 pages oratorial called Messiah. Now, we know that today as Handel's Messiah. And what came of that composition? Well, remember, this was a society that was chaotic. Yet the destitute, the poor, the desperate, many hopelessly in debt and incarcerated in debtors' prison. Well, Handel's Messiah, it premiered in Dublin, in Ireland, at a charity concert. Now, do you know Handel's Messiah? Do you know the words of it? They're really just quotes from the Bible. Well, if you're familiar with the words of the oratorial, the first words of Handel's Messiah, what are they? They are the words of this passage we're looking at tonight, Isaiah 40. And so at that charity concert, as the ten tenor sang the words of Isaiah 40 verse 1, comfort, comfort my people. It was as though in this chaotic society, God spoke hope again, piercing to the hearts of all those listening. Remember, this was a society in the midst of chaos. And after that charity concert, all the revenue was collected. And it was used to pay the debts of the impoverished. The prison gates were opened wide. And that, that concert after that, 142 prisoners were liberated. The heads of the poor were raised up in rejoicing, for they experienced something of Handel's Messiah. They experienced something of the comfort of God. Now those words of comfort in Handel's Messiah... They were in fact spoken much earlier in the book of Isaiah. Not to the people initially in Dublin or London, but now let's move back about 2,200 years before that. Now we come to the time of the 6th century BC, about 540 BC. And the people of God at this time, they were not where they were meant to be. They have been taken captive from their land, plucked out of their home and transported to another land under the ruthless foreign oppression of the Babylonians. Now, at this time, they had no king of their own. Their temple was destroyed, the treasures taken away. And just like the first reading we heard, Psalm 137, and just like that old Jamaican song, you know that one? By the rivers of Babylon... 
There we sat down. Yeah, we wept. When we remembered Zion. Almost sang it there. Tempted to. But I didn't to save your ears. You see, they were hopeless at that point. Powerless. Destitute. And in the midst of that chaos, what did the people of God need to hear? Well, they needed to hear the words of this passage, Isaiah 40. Words that spoke to the people of God in about 540 BC. Words that spoke to those at the concert in Dublin, in London, in Handel's Messiah in the 1740s. Words that we continue to need to hear even today. Comfort, comfort my people. Now this evening, there may be many of you here who have known God all your life. There are some of you here who are still growing in your knowledge and understanding of God. And there may be even be some of you here who do not know God at all. But as we reflect on this passage, what we all need to know about God, what we all need to know about the only true God, is that this is the God who comforts. This is the God who comforts. And if we reflect just on our own life, how many of our life's experiences do we need God's comfort? We need comfort when we go to the doctors and the diagnosis is bad. We need comfort when we go in for surgery. We need comfort if we are experiencing some chronic illness. We need comfort when we are undergoing depression. We need comfort when there are disappointments in life, missing out on the job, on the promotion. We need comfort when we suffer our own mistakes. We need comfort when we are despairing and heartbroken. We need comfort when the pressure in life is on. We need comfort when the tears are flowing. We need comfort when there's bereavement. How much of life's experiences do we need comfort? Well, the God of the Bible is the one who comforts. And that was what the people of God needed to hear. While they were in exile, away from their land, demoralized, they needed to hear these words. And it was as though a, a thick fog that darkened the horizon, was clearing and the sun was dawning. And then we read verse 1. Have a look. Keep your Bibles open. We read, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Now this is not like comfort as in a soothing, gentle pat on the shoulder. You know, there, there, my son. It's okay. It's okay. Not like that. It is instead comfort as in to take courage to be strengthened because there's going to be a new beginning, a new start, a new life. And that's because we read here, their judgment that they were experiencing was coming to an end. The fog is clearing and the sun is dawning. Have a look at verse 2 now. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her heart service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That is, her debt has been paid in full. Double meaning it has matched her sin. But how is it that this comfort will come about for the people of God? It's a huge promise that God would say to such destitute people, 
there will be comfort. But how will it come? Well, God could send another king, can't he? But of course that won't help. Even the greatest king, King David, he failed. Or God could send another prophet. But of course that won't help as well because the people just won't listen to their prophet. In fact, many of the prophets of the Old Testament were killed by the people of God. And so what will it take for God to come true of his promise? Comfort, comfort my people. What will it take? Well, it will take God himself. He himself will come to bring comfort and his glory will be seen and it will be announced before he comes. We see that in verses 3 to 5. Have a look. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. You see, it is God who is coming. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God makes huge promises, comfort, comfort my people. This time, it won't be a king, it won't be a prophet, God himself will come. And if God says so, God will do so. It's, it's unlike our words that we speak. We don't always mean what we say, do we? Sometimes we let words slip and we just don't mean it, and how terrible when it does happen. And what we say we cannot always do, simply because we are not God. We don't have that power. We can't always come true to our word. But what God says, God will do. And even when compared to the span of human life, the span of your life or my life, God might grant us 80 years, 90 years, even 100 years, but yet it is fleeting. But God's word we read here, what he says, it will come true, it will endure forever. And so verses 8 to 6 to 8, have a look now. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. And so if God promised, there will be comfort. And if God promised, I will come, then he will come. He will come true on his word. You can bet your life on it. But then how will he come? How will God come to his people? That is a huge promise. How will the people of God get to engage with God and meet God Almighty? How will God come close to his people? You see, for us who are Christians here, we, we come to God daily. As we draw near to God, he draws near to us. We pray we're near God, we're with God. It seems so easy, it seems so painless. But you have to think about this. For God to come, it is extremely terrifying. It is horrifying to encounter the living God, unshielded in power, perfect in holiness. To face God, we'll die in an instant. You see, Isaiah himself, earlier in the book of Isaiah, when he had that vision of God on his throne, he was broken down in terror. He said, woe to me. 
I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. How can I face God? This is the God who sits on the throne of heaven. And so, how will God come? It is terrifying for God to come, but how will God come? Well, we now read that he'll come as a powerful king and he will have unrivaled rule, the rule of all, and he'll bring absolute justice. But yet at the same time, with all that power, he'll also come as a gentle shepherd, one who will nurse and nurture and embrace and cradle his lambs close to his heart. That's what we see, that tension, powerful king, gentle shepherd. Look at verses 10 to 11. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his hunt. He gently leads those that have young. And so you see that. The arm, the same arm that will rule with unequaled power, is the same arm that will comfort with unsurpassed care. Now, is that not what we need to hear? That this is the promise of God. In the midst of chaos, he promises such comfort that he will come himself to bring it about. And so there is indeed comfort, comfort my people. Those in the exile, during the exile, hearing those words would have been sweet, sweet words to them. And it remains sweet throughout all generations as we reflect on this. And God promises, comfort, comfort my people. But then, can this really be so? Can God really do this? I mean, no doubt the people of God during the exile by the rivers of Babylon so depressed under foreign oppression, defeated and demoralized, they would have doubted. As sweet as those words are to the ears, can God really do that? And I'm sure many of us here from time to time, season to season, will share in that same doubt. Is this for real? That I can experience this type of comfort? That God himself would come to do it? I mean, does God really care for me? We might ask. We might doubt. Can God really help? Is God really able? And so if we doubt, if we question that way, what would God say? Well, God would say the very words we read now, which puts us in our place. It puts the world, it puts the universe in its place. Now, if you ever feel small and insignificant, well, these few verses now will make you feel even smaller. You see, what we see here is incomparable power, unthinkable vastness, unimaginable grandeur. God is beyond measure. He is beyond comparison and he is without rival. And in a series of rhetorical questions, who can, who has, it's rhetorical and the answer is meant to be, of course, no one. No one can. And so have a look, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. I mean, try to picture that. 
Who has measured the waters, the oceans, the seas of the earth in the hollows of his hand? Look at your hand. How big is it? How much water can you hold in the palm of your hand, in the hollows of your hand? I did a little experiment last night with our kids. I got them over the sink, turned on the tap, and I got them to try to hold as much water as they can. And then I got one of those little medicine cups with the measurements there and tried to measure how, how many mils they could carry. Ethan maybe got about eight mils. Caleb, six. Okay, six. <laughs> Caleb was, I think, about nine or ten. Esther was ten. She's got big, longer fingers, bigger hands. And I thought, I'm the man of the house. Surely I'll have a lot more, maybe a litre. You know what I got? 12 mils. And whatever was there just dripped away so quickly anyway. But yet God here can measure the great oceans, the great seas of this earth in the hollow of his hand. Verse 12. Or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens. That's from thumb to pinky finger. How much can you measure? with your hands from thumb to pinky finger. Mine's about 25 centimetres. I can measure this lectern. I can measure my face. It's a pretty good face, but I can measure that. What can God do? The heavens. Verse 12 still. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Our scales in the kitchen, we can weigh one kilo, two kilograms of, of flour, of sugar. God. We've got Mount Everest. We've got K2. We've got the Matterhorn. We've got Mont Blanc. All tiny pieces of pebbles on a scale. And God weighs it. The bigness of God is just unthinkable. And so is his wisdom. There's no comparison. Look at verses 13 to 14. Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? And what's the answer? The answer is, of course, no one. No one at all. It's not like at the beginning of creation, before everything was formed. It's not like God got in some consultants who only overcharge under deliver it's not like god relied on consultants to come not not you who are consultants i'm sure you do a good job god does not need consultants it's not like god needed experts in metallurgy in astrophysics chemists to design parts of his world you see the most brilliant minds on this earth the brightest minds on this earth are like nothing compared to the mind of God. Nothing. As smart as we might think we are, nothing compared to God. Which, if you think about it, will help us see how wicked and evil it is when small human minds, little brains in the heads of human beings, would even dare to claim there is no God. That is wicked and evil. You see, God needs no help, no instructor, no teacher, no mentor. God is beyond all measure. But he's not yet finished. 
Now he speaks about the kingdoms, the nations of the world. As big and grand and impressive the nation, the kingdoms, the empires are, how do they measure up to God? Look at verses 15 to 17. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. I mean, nothing's pretty bad, but less than nothing. Now, I wonder how that goes for any nation who feels so much pride. China, 1.39 billion people, the most populated country in the world, just a speck of dust. India, the second most populated country, 1.31 billion people, just a speck of dust. The United States, 332 million people, a speck of dust. Australia, 25 million people, a tiny speck of dust. And if that is Australia, 25 million people, a speck of dust, what are we as individuals? Not even a dust on a dust, so small, we're almost invisible. And so nations can rage all they like, deny God, turn their backs on God, trash God. But to God, they are as insignificant as fine dust. Just a light blow and they'll be gone. And only a fool would muck around with this God. And what has humanity done in light of who this God is? Well, what humanity has done was instead of worshipping the God up there, the bigger, the greater, bigger and greater than we can ever imagine, we've made gods down here, formed and limited by our human minds, by our human imagination, made by human hands. Instead of worshipping the God who holds us in his hands, we've made gods who fit in our hands and worship it. I mean, just think about how foolish that is. Gods that can't talk. Gods that can't walk. And you better be careful around these shrines we go around and see. Be careful that you don't bump accidentally into any of these statues because they might topple and their heads might fall off. But of course not just idols of wood and stone and precious stones and, and metal, but idols of their heart, idols of influence, idols of affluence. You see, you can see the irony in that. Instead of worshipping the God up there, we've worshipped the God down here. Irony. But not just total irony. It is, in fact, according to God, total depravity. And so look, verses 18 to 20. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Now when you hear those words, like it or not, God is not very politically correct. 
like it or not, is not very sensitive here, is it? Because what is God saying? What God is saying, the millions of idols we see around the world, the idols that our hearts produce, what are they? They are all fake. They are all fake. The real God, the only God there is, he is enthroned in heaven above everyone and everything. And so we see that, verses 21 to 22. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was found? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. You see, that is the real God, the only true God, beyond measure, beyond comparison, and without rival. And so in case any one of us gets tempted to doubt that God can come true of his promise, comfort, comfort my people. If we doubt that, we look at that, how can we doubt? He has absolute power. And if that's not enough, he gets us to look up now once more. Consider how vast his handiwork. Look at verses 25 and 26. To whom will you compare? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts, the starry hosts, one by one, and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. You see what God is saying there? There are about 100 billion stars in our galaxy alone. Just our galaxy. If you were to count each and every star in our galaxy at a rate of one per second, it would take you 3,000 years to count it all. 3,000 years. You won't live that long. I won't live that long. But that's just our galaxy. There are about 100 billion galaxies in the universe. And yet, with all those stars, billions upon billions, not one is missing. All have been named by God. And so if this is the same God who says, Comfort, comfort my people. Do you think he has the power to do it? Well, of course he has. And he can. But not only can God do it, God also will. And so let no one ever think that God does not care. Let no one ever think that God is too busy for me. Let no one ever think that God would ignore me. And that's why God now asks them, look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? And I think we can replace there with our names. Why do you say, O church, and complain, O Surrey Hills? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. I mean, is anything too difficult for God? He's not like us. He doesn't need sleep. He doesn't get tired or grow weary. And so his power should quash any doubt we may have. And so verse 28, do you not know? We've heard that many times already. Do you not know? Have you not heard? 
The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. And now we come to hear of how he will comfort, what that comfort will look like. So what does it look like? Verse 29. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. And then verse 31. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. See, God promises to comfort. He can and he will. He is God. He's powerful beyond imagining and he'll make good his word. And so the God who comforts is the God who can is also the God who will, but also the God who has. Because how has God comforted his people? Well, on, on one level, to the people in the exile, by the rivers of Babylon, they did receive the comfort of God. You see, as powerful as the Babylonian kingdom was, remember, to God they were like fine dust, just a blow and they'll be gone. And that was exactly what happened. He brings princes to naught, we read, and reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. And so Babylon, just a blow and they'll be soon gone. And next God raised up the Persians under Cyrus. He would rise to power and the people of God would then allow to return to their land, to go back to Jerusalem, to rebuild their city, to rebuild their temple. And so they did receive comfort. They did experience the comfort of God. But of course we know that that comfort did not last because soon the Jewish people, they will once again find themselves under another oppressor, the Romans. Life became chaotic again. But you see, that comfort that they experienced on one level was in fact looking forward to a bigger, greater, deeper comfort of God. Not merely physical, but spiritual. The ultimate comfort, the true comfort of God that all people need. And that is to know the loving, warm embrace of God. And that came about five centuries later. Five centuries later, we open up to the, to the Gospels. And what do we read? Well, we read that there was a voice calling out from the desert, the voice of John the Baptist who called out and cried out, Prepare the way of the Lord. Repent and believe the good news. God will come. God has come. And who came? Well, God's very own Son, Jesus Christ, the God-man. And he had to be the God-man for God to come in his unshielded power, full in glory and holiness, perfect in righteousness, and to face human beings would die in an instant. And so it had to be the God-man. God the Son came in the flesh, such that the Apostle John, when he saw the Lord Jesus, what did he say? He said in John 1, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus came. 
the Son of God. God did arrive to bring comfort. And he came as the powerful king, entrusted with judgment over the living and the dead. Jesus is that judge, that king. But yet at the same time, we read of the words of Jesus. He came and he claimed in John 10, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The powerful king, the gentle shepherd. Jesus came, God came, to bring comfort. And that's why in Handel's Messiah, it's often performed during Christmas time, but it was in fact initially intended to be around Easter time. But because of the comfort of God that is pronounced in the first words, it, it, it speaks of what God did in Jesus, in the incarnation. That's why it's performed often at Christmas. Because in the first part of Handel's Messiah speaks of the incarnation. The second part speaks of the death. The third part speaks of the resurrection. And in the first part, it begins, Comfort, comfort my people. And how did the first part end in Handel's Messiah? Or well, it speaks of that comfort coming. When Jesus came in his birth and then to declare to the world that we all need this comfort and he is the one who offers real peace, real comfort, real assurance. And in the last lines of the first part of Handel's Messiah, Jesus proclaims this comfort and he said this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You want the comfort of God? You want to experience what it means to have deep, lasting comfort? It means coming to Jesus, who offers everyone Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And so what does it mean for us today? Well, what it means is that in our daily life as Christians, in our daily walk in faith, if we want to know real comfort, not fake, deep comfort, not shallow, Lasting comfort, not fleeting. It comes in knowing the Lord Jesus. It's centered on the Lord Jesus. God has come. And so in illness, in illness, when we experience that, when we have that, God may or may not heal. We can pray for healing, but God may or may not heal. But in Jesus, you can find comfort for your soul for he is the good shepherd who holds you close even in your illness in bereavement your soul can find comfort for Jesus is the one who holds the power over life and death in loneliness your soul can find comfort for Jesus has come near and will never leave you alone in disappointments and despair we experience in life, your soul can find comfort. For Jesus even gave up his life and he'll never disappoint you. In heartbreaks, in sorrow, 
your soul can find comfort. For Jesus' own heart was broken so that our hearts can be mended. In chaos, your soul can find comfort. For Jesus holds you close as a gentle shepherd. In tears, in sorrow, your soul can find comfort. For Jesus will one day wipe away every tear. In death, your soul can find comfort. For Jesus will raise you who belong to him to resurrection life one day. It's no wonder why in Handel's Messiah, which is magnificent, it leads to the wonderful crescendo that we all know, the hallelujah chorus. For the King of kings and the Lord of lords is the one who promises comfort, comfort my people. Let's pray.